1: live from our nation's capital this is bloomberg sound on
0: when you have such a slim majority it means that there's going to be compromises
2: one way to draw more people into the workforce and to draw them in productively is to pay them a higher wage
1: bloomberg sound on politics policy and perspective from dc's top name inflation is running
3: much higher than the fed projected there is a monitoring system that many big corporations are really contemplating as to sort of how do we keep the employees that are inside healthy
1: Bloomberg sound on with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg radio live from Washington where we've got news today as an effort to move forward on a bipartisan infrastructure bill fails in the Senate Republicans said no. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer now headed back to the drawing board. And coming up, we'll talk about what just happened with Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick. We'll also be joined by Mark Zandy, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, who is arguing for the need to spend on infrastructure to boost the economy. And he doesn't buy the talk about inflation lately. Thank you for joining us on a busy day in Washington where Republicans in the Senate have blocked a move to begin debate on infrastructure.
4: On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51, three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn, not having voted in the affirmative. The motion <clears throat> the motion is not agreed to.
1: There you have it. Senator Tina Smith, Minnesota, with the final tally. The motion fails. Likely, no one was surprised. If you've been following this. Let's talk about it. To begin with, Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick, he's been following it since this whole process began. Jack, welcome. Uh, What was the point of this exercise if everyone seemed to know it would fail?
5: Uh, The point was to get things moving. The majority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, had known that this was going to happen, that they weren't going to get 60 votes uh, in this procedural vote uh, today. But you could probably argue that he got what he wanted because it lit a fire under the bipartisan group of senators negotiating the final details. And the latest we've heard uh, from Senator Mitt Romney is actually they may be able to finish this up Monday or Tuesday of next week. And previously, we hadn't heard something that soon. Uh, So we may see another one of these procedural votes in the near future, maybe early next week, because this uh, seemed to light a fire under those numbers.
1: Well, that's the beauty of a self-imposed deadline, as I've been saying throughout the day, right? Chuck Schumer can do this again Monday or Wednesday or whenever there's a document. If that happens, though, uh, assuming that it does, Jack, and we actually have a bill that people can read and vote on, will there be Republicans who vote yes?
5: It sounds like it. One, they can't get this procedural vote done unless there are at least 10 Republicans who are happy with it. Uh, They need 60 votes. That means at least 50 Democrats plus 10 Republicans. The latest we've heard there actually was a a joint statement uh, that came out from the bipartisan group of senators who were involved in these talks that includes 12 Democrats and 10 Republicans. Saying They're going to keep working on it. They're getting close. So, yeah, right now there are 10 Republicans who feel good about where things are going. It wasn't they weren't fast enough to get it done today. Uh, but unless something comes out of left field and, and messes everything up uh, next week, there should be something that comes together that at least 10 Republicans can support.
1: All right. Perfect. Jack, thank you. Bloomberg Governments, Jack Fitzpatrick with the very latest here from Inside the Beltway, I've been looking forward to talking with Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics Out. The report today that everyone seems to be writing about and posting on social media It argues for passing both the bipartisan infrastructure deal that was at issue today, as well as the reconciliation package that will still, frankly, being conceived all for the better of the economy. And he's with us now. Mark Zandi, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio.
6: Good to be with you, Joe. Thanks for having me.
1: You say failing to pass these plans would, quote, certainly diminish the economy's prospects, unquote. Mark, aren't we already growing at a pretty fast clip?
6: Uh, We are uh, as we rebound from uh, the pandemic, and that uh, is the result of the reopening, all of the fiscal and monetary support the economy is receiving, and all the pent-up demand that's getting unleashed uh, and being fueled by a lot of the excess saving that's out there. So, yeah, we're, we're growing very quickly, but that'll diminish and we'll settle back in. You know, uh, 12, 12, uh, 18 months from now. And uh, the legislation we're talking about here is about longer term economic growth, you know, lifting the economy's long run growth potential so that, you know, we're not stuck in a 2 percent world where we were pri- prior to the pandemic. We want to see something stronger than that. And this legislation is about trying to lift that longer term growth.
1: What would be the difference uh, with or without? What kind of growth would this achieve?
6: Uh I, over the next decade uh, beginning in 2022 which is you know if everything kind of sticks to script when yeah. uh, the legislation would be implemented so let's just say the 10 year budget horizon 2022 to 2031 it would uh, if everything got kind of got passed as as i uh, have assumed and you know as you pointed out there's you know a lot of things to be worked out here and a lot of moving parts sure. but if they kind of stick to my script uh, then it would raise uh, GDP growth, real GDP growth, by about a tenth of a percent per annum over that ten-year period. So, okay. you know, that instead of growing two percent, we grow two point one percent. Which, you know, I think to most people's ears, that doesn't sound a lot. And in, in a given year, it's not. But over a period of a decade or two or three, you know, that's real money and, and would make a difference. And it's also, not, you know, hopefully not the end of the story. It's you know the start of a, a going down a path to addressing some of our long-term economic problems. The lack of infrastructure, issues around climate change and income and wealth inequality. So these are long-term, long-running, pernicious problems that can't be solved in a year or even a decade. Uh, it took us longer to get into these problems. It's going to take us a few decades to get out.
1: Well, there you have hard numbers from Mark Annie. That's a great place to start here. The other side of this, of course, as as those criticizing this type of uh, infrastructure spending. Is just the dollar signs, and you're indicating now those dollar signs will be will pay back in economic growth. The other part of it is inflation. Uh, Mark, you say you're not worried about this causing long-term inflation. A lot of people in Washington are. How how come you see it differently?
6: Well, uh, yeah, I think for a few reasons uh, on the inflation issue. Uh, first, uh, there's there's still a lot of slack in the economy. I mean, the unemployment rate is 5.9 percent. That's still a long way from where we were pre pandemic, you know, in the mid threes. And of course, labor force participation is much lower today than it was pre pandemic. You know, these are folks that stepped out of the workforce in the pandemic and not even counted as unemployed. So it's going to take a fair amount to get, uh, you know, those people uh, back to work and to get back to, you know, something that we feel really good about. So there's a lot of room to maneuver here. And when you have a lot of slack, pretty tough to get, you know, sustained higher rates of inflation. Second, um, as I mentioned, uh, the, I, I think the, uh, the legislation will lift longer-term economic growth. So, you know, it, it gives us more room to grow uh, without creating inflationary pressures. I mean, it, the, the legislation should lift our productivity growth, lift labor force participation, and that eases inflationary pressures. It allows us, to, the point of it is to grow more quickly without generating inflationary pressures. And then third, you know, if you look at the kind of the elements of, you know what's going into the legislation. They're intended to address, uh, you know, the cost pressures. You know, for, uh, just as an example, a big part of the of the uh, of the reconciliation packages is trying to help increase the supply of housing. And you know, many of us are now aware of the very severe shortage of housing, particularly affordable homes, low lower priced uh, homes, and and uh, more affordable rental properties are in very short supply. So rents and prices are rising very rapidly. That adds to inflation. Well. You know, this legislation increases the supply of housing, and that should take the edge off rents and, and prices and, and broader inflation. And that's just an example. There are many other examples. So there's lots of reasons to believe that this is uh, not going to be, uh, you know, uh, an inflationary problem. Uh, yeah. Finally, I'll point out, and I think this is important – You know, we talked about the price tag, you know, at least on paper, and we can discuss what that might mean. But at least on paper, this is paid for. You know, there's tax increases and there's other pay-fors in the legislation to cover the cost over a 10-year budget horizon. So we'll see if those stay in there.
1: We'll see what happens with that Uh, as we talk with Mark Zandi, You know, Mark, it's not lost on me. And I think a few people have pointed this out that, of course, there was a time when you were advising uh, former Senator John McCain. I just wonder what you think of the debate, the, the the form that this has taken, the shape that it's taken in terms of politicizing infrastructure. You're calling for passage of both of these. Republicans don't want any part of the idea of soft infrastructure, human infrastructure, but you're arguing that that in itself will help to boost growth. What would you tell Republicans on Capitol Hill?
6: Well, you know, we've got some very large problems uh, that I think have become very obvious over time, and the pandemic put them in very st- uh, clear relief. I mean, we have underinvested in physical inter- infrastructure for decades, and it's showing. I mean, I think that, you know it's, it's obvious to everybody who you know commutes into work, uh, you know, gets on, uh, gets in, a, goes to an airport, or you know, tries to use broadband in different parts of the country. Uh, we've got a real problem with income and wealth inequality that you know is very clear as a result of the pandemic. You know, groups of the popul- you know, minority groups and lower-income households have been. You know, left behind, and we have a climate uh, change uh, problem, very severe. That's now becoming very, very obvious. You can, you can just see it all, all over, all over the planet. And so, you know, I would say, you know, we've got some big problems, and we can't sit on our hands. We got to start. We got to start moving. Uh, we got to start addressing these problems, because you know, again, you know, these didn't happen in a year or two. They happened over several decades, and it's going to take a long time to get out. So if we don't you know, take this window and walk and, and, and walk through it, and, and start to, to work on these things. You know, we're, we're, the costs are going to be even greater to us, so we got to move.
1: I don't want to point you somewhere you don't want to go here, Mark Sandy. But when we talk about inflation and the way that you're looking at this as a as a short-term phenomenon, can I extrapolate that you like the way the Fed is handling things right now?
6: Yeah, you can. I think they're doing exactly the right thing. I mean, you know, obviously, there's a you know boatload of uncertainty here, and the pandemic is. You know, just outside uh, the box. I mean, you know, this is something we've, you know, not uh, faced in, in modern economic history. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and no one in, uh, can, should, uh, you know, we should be, should be humble here. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of risk, but, you know, I do think, given what we know uh, and given how things are kind of unfolding, the Fed is uh, doing a good job. Uh, you know, they, they I think they do need to keep the foot flat on the accelerator until it's, you know, clearly obvious we're on the other wow. side of the pandemic. And obviously you know with the Delta variant
0: we're not.
1: Mark Zandi, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. Appreciate your insights today and glad you got that report out. There's a good bit of timing here.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. He's accused of illegally lobbying the Trump administration. and The call was coming from inside the House. On behalf of the United Arab Emirates, Accused as well, charged with obstruction of justice for making false statements. That would be Tom Barrack, founder of Colony Capital, former chair of Donald Trump's inaugural committee. We talked about it a bit yesterday. Just a week before he was put in jail, Barrack sat down for an interview with Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker and spoke to his deep ties with the Middle East. Everyone knows that you have deep and long-standing ties to the Qataris, to the Emiratis, you have a history in Saudi Arabia that goes back to one of your first jobs ever in the 1970s. Are they all behind you in this effort? Yes.
5: Yes. And, and various mechanisms. You know, the, the, as we've talked about before, the,
1: the region is uh, so complicated. He would be under arrest within a week of sitting for that interview. And to help us learn more about what Barak is accused of, how this all led to an indictment, Joined by Bloomberg investigative reporter Caleb Melby, Caleb, thanks for being here. Was Barrick lobbying Donald Trump directly, or or others in the president's the former president's orbit? Yeah,
2: thanks for having me. It's um, an interesting question. Uh, the information we have in the indictment really focuses on the conversations that Tom Barrick, um, his assistant Matthew Grimes, who's also indicted, uh, and a an Emirati businessman named Rashid Al Malik uh, had. And you could see in those conversations, Tom Barrack saying I'd put in a good word with uh, with either representatives for the campaign or the administration.
1: The the indictment that he's talking about, seven counts. It is quite a read. Alleging Barrack promoted the UAE's interests in the media, wrote an op ed, would do live shots on TV. And even got language praising the UAE in a speech that Donald Trump made as a candidate. It goes on to say, Barrett, quote, agreed to advocate for the appointment of individuals favored by the UAE in the new administration. Let's see if we can get back with uh, Caleb here. What did Barrick lie about? What's this uh, obstruction charge all about?
2: Yeah, so uh, investigators asked some pretty specific questions about his interactions uh, with the Emirati businessman Rashid al-Malik um, in terms of like what devices he, he, was, he received any feedback directly from them in terms of an energy speech that he weighed in on uh, that the Trump campaign gave. Very direct, kind of concrete, specific things uh, that the government then laid out in the, the indictment.
1: This is something that we uh, discussed yesterday with Rick and Jeannie, and I'd love to have them weigh in on this uh, before we update the news here. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis, Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. Uh, Jeannie, you heard what Caleb was talking about here. I mean, these are serious charges. When When you're getting language inserted into a presidential candidate's speech, when you're advocating for the appointment of individuals favored by another country to work in the new administration... This is like a beach book when you read it.
4: It is. I mean, if it was a movie, you would almost not believe it. Amongst other things, we've also heard that Barrack himself was up for an appointment that didn't come through. But as you mentioned, inserting language in a speech, praising the government that you're lobbying on behalf of, providing talking points for TV appearances and not registering. And then, of course, most significantly in terms of what he's facing now as charges, making false statements about that, lying about it, an obstruction of justice. As we said yesterday, don't lie to the federal government. Don't oh, lie to the right. FBI. And it's haunting to hear though him talking a week before he, these charges come down for, on him.
1: The timing is pretty special here. The idea of uh, Tom Barrack spending the weekend in jail here, Rick, it looks like he won't get a hearing until Monday morning. This is going to be a lot of time to think, isn't it?
3: Well, I'm, I'm sure that's not lost on the uh, prosecutors who yeah. are trying to soften him up and get information. Uh, here's a guy who's used to you know, playing polo on his own private polo field, <laughs> visiting his estate of winemaking, traveling the world on his private jet, and, and he's spending the weekend in, 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 in a jail. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's gotta be a startling culture shock and, uh, and a reality check for, uh, for Tom Barrick especially considering uh, it's hard to believe that he even saw this coming as, 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 as much as a month ago. Uh, Bloomberg did an interview with him where he's talking about his new investment strategy that included money coming in from UAE, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Wow. I mean, you've got to scratch your head and say, wow, I mean, was this a complete and utter surprise? And if so, um, you know, uh, I assume that's the strategy that the government is employing.
1: We're going to find out as we spend some time with the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Shee Sheehan, Zeno, and Rick Davis. They're going to stay right here. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg Frio to San Francisco, Bloomberg 9.60, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com this is Bloomberg sound on with Joe Matthew thanks for spending some time with us on Bloomberg radio the good thing about a self-imposed deadline is you can always make a new one right as we turn to the way forward here on infrastructure and today's procedural vote that failed is most expected and so yes now it is on to plan B for Chuck Schumer at the end of the vote, I changed my response to a no so that I may move to reconsider this vote at a future time. The Senate Majority Leader on the floor a short time ago as it became clear that Republicans blocked the move to begin debate. And we're spending time with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie sheehan Zeno, and Rick Davis. Jeannie, we can just do this all over again next week, right? If if a bill is actually written, there's something to look at, to talk about. This could happen again Monday, could happen again Wednesday for that matter.
4: It could. I have to say, as a political junkie, I have been on pins and needles all day between the infrastructure vote. I know you've been on Capitol Hill following this thing. Of course, Pelosi's bombshell, you know, the list goes on and on. But in terms of this, you know, I have to say the word that came to my mind was sort of an ominous start to what the White House and Democrats had hoped would be a push forward. Now, we knew well before the day started that they weren't going to get this vote. But even in the aftermath of that vote failing, you've had Democrats charging that Republicans, you know, asking them, you know, quite frankly, why you can't agree to even debate a bill and wondering if they're just dragging this on. And Republicans saying, how could you ask us to vote for something you haven't even gotten a framework for, let alone right. legislation? So, you know, yes, everybody seems very hopeful about Monday, but not necessarily, um, you know, something that we're going to see happen unless we see what I think is some kind of structure here with pay fors and everything else.
1: No real surprise here, though, Rick. Right. I mean, if we will even remember this in a couple of weeks, if this bill eventually moves forward in some form.
3: No, it'll be one of the many uh, deadlines that have been uh, come and gone in the course of this uh, negotiation for this bipartisan package. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a month and a half ago when, and when Joe Biden said, hey, I've got this deadline this week, and it passed, and hmm. we've made progress since then on a bipartisan package. There's progress being made now on a bipartisan package. Uh, if it happens, it will not be noticed. Uh, if it doesn't happen, it will be part of the finger-pointing that will occur in both caucuses as to what went wrong in this. Uh, it shows a distinct difference between... Uh, Schumer, who likes the pressure tactics and the high visibility, walk people out on a plank style politics, And, and Mitch McConnell, when he was majority leader, didn't like to take a vote at all if he didn't have the votes to win didn't see any reason why (laughs) you would ever take a vote and lose it as a majority leader and so it's just a distinctly different strategic approach to run in the senate
1: so it's not about counting votes it's about strategy here right we heard from mitch mcconnell the of course republican leader in the senate today there's no outcome
5: yet no bipartisan agreement no text nothing for the congressional budget office to evaluate and certainly nothing on which to vote
1: Jeannie, this is an interesting scenario because the White House says it supports Chuck Schumer's strategy here. Apparently the president liked this and it gets back to lighting the fire, right? You tend to think that there may not have been such a concerted effort to write a bill if this had not happened.
4: You know, I am one of those people who questions this strategy. I don't know if I am just old fashioned, but I don't think you call for a vote that you know you're going to lose. I mean, you know, the the bottom line is they lost this vote. And, you know, yes, we may forget about it if this thing goes forward on Monday or, or you know, in the future. But I am not con- I'm not convinced that the by I mean, to me, the message then to the bipartisan group is you weren't concerned about moving forward on this unless I called this vote that I knew I was going to lose. Mm -hmm. I'd have more faith in this bipartisan group than that. So I I take exception to this strategy by Chuck Schumer. But, hey, it may work. He may get the vote successfully on Monday.
1: Rick, I have to ask you about Mark Zandy because he was on with us a little bit earlier this hour, as you heard from Moody's Analytics. He used to advise uh, your office when when you were advising Senator John McCain during the campaign specifically, as we remember this. Uh, He's on the other side uh, from Republicans on this matter. He is urging that both plans, including reconciliation, be passed to boost the economy over the next 10 years. And he says this whole inflation concern is not real. It will, in fact, be temporary. He was advised. My, my memory serves correctly. He was advising Republicans at one point.
3: Oh, yeah. He was our uh, chief economic advisor in the That's 2008 right. presidential campaign. And uh, we really valued his advice. He was actually the first person to tell John McCain that we we're entering a very choppy period in the economy and to watch out for a significant downturn in advance of what we saw as the greatest financial crisis of our time. Oh wait! And no. so I believe anything Mark Zandi says. <laughs> and, uh, and doesn't it and tell I us a lot, say, though, though,
1: if he's across the aisle now from. Republicans on Capitol Hill. Yeah, but you know what?
3: John McCain would be a part of this bipartisan group, right? I mean, like his favorite thing in the United States Senate was being a part of the gang of eight, the gang of 12, the gang of 16, in this case, it'd be the gang of 20. And it'd be 21 if he were there. And and yet, you know, it's interesting because Mark clearly has taken the approach that we want to go big. It's great for the economy if we do it, and the economy can absorb that amount of activity. I think John McCain was the kind of guy who thinks big too. And I think he probably would have embraced that kind of thinking by Mark. Certainly did during the campaign.
1: But I think he also would have sounded like Genie, right? We're not voting on something that's not written yet. There's no score. There's no hearings.
3: No, he would want to see action, right? And he would agree with uh, Mitt Romney, for instance, who have said, hey, look, I told the majority leader that we could have a vote on Monday and I'll vote for passage. And, mm-hmm. and I think... The majority leader just went deaf to 20 people who are trying to get a deal done. He's right. not in those meetings of tacos and wine last night. <laughs> and so uh, I think he's got to listen to the conferees who are actually doing the hard
1: work. I don't know if you guys saw pictures of that big case of wine going into the Senate <laughs> last night, but it, I felt like I missed a party. Jeannie, you mentioned Pelosi's bombshell. I have to ask you about it today. The House Speaker uh, basically kicked two Republicans selected uh, for the January 6th, uh, the, the committee, the, the commission, basically kicked them off, Jim Jordan, Jim Banks. And in response, Kevin McCarthy, the House GOP leader, said, "Fine, I'm pulling all my guys off this panel. Are we gonna end up with two separate partisan investigations?
4: well we are but one person he could not pull off was Liz Cheney and I think what stunned me the most today and I know you were on Capitol Hill was her statement on Capitol Hill when she sounded like you know the voice of the Democrats but certainly the voice of the Constitution where she said this is going to go forward that we are going to have you know a fair investigation here and she actually said that Jordan and Banks should have been pulled off that Nancy Pelosi did the right thing and she She also said she doesn't believe that McCarthy is qualified at this point to be speaker if he's elected in 2022. So quite an astonishing moment from Pelosi to McCarthy to Liz Cheney. And to your point, this is all going to be breaking in the next few months.
1: We have a lot to look forward to there. Rick, was this a smart move for the Republican leader in the House?
3: you know, look, he set up his own defeat and then cried politics. So, I mean, like, it's a tactic. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knew she wasn't going to accept Jim Jordan, you know, on this panel. I mean, you know, he's been the focal point of all the um, uh, anti-messaging on this issue. So, uh, he knew she was going to throw him off and, and he was right away ready to march down to the to the House uh, Media Office and say, "Hey, you know, look at the politics she's playing with this thing." Um, That's why he picked So, them, so right? look, this is the House of Representatives, right? If they yes. don't do this, we got to take their temperature and make sure they don't have a problem.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. First, it was the Alpha or UK variant, then it was the Beta, followed by the Gamma, and now we all know about the Delta variant—more contagious, more dangerous. And the big take today says more variants are coming and the U.S. is not ready to track them. Bloomberg reporter Cynthia Coons with a great piece of writing here after spending time in the Pandemic Response Lab in Queens, New York, where people in lab coats are busy working on genomic sequencing machines to identify which form of COVID a patient has. They've seen them all, including one called Delta Plus. But the lab is doing the work free leaving some to wonder how long this can go on. Cynthia Coons joins us now on Bloomberg Radio with a great piece. Thanks for being here, Cynthia. Why is no one paying for such an important service?
7: Well, first off, thanks for having me. This is a really tricky question that we explored through a lot of different avenues because there are labs doing this work, but they're all doing it either through grants or there's some federal money for it, not a lot, but there is some there's philanthropies that are funding this kind of work but it is a wide variety of people paying for it and it's not going through the traditional channel when you think of most healthcare is paid through insurance yeah. that's really what most healthcare is paid through this would never be paid for by insurance because as of now a mutation doesn't necessarily give a doctor any information from which he or she can make a decision about how to treat a patient so this really falls into the realm of public health and public health has been chronically underfunded for decades long before the coronavirus pandemic. And what this has really been a wake up call is can we build these systems now and continue to support them from a government perspective so that we don't end up in this situation where we're constantly playing catch up. And we're still playing catch up with coronavirus in the US. We're still not in a place where we're moving that quickly with information about mutations for people to really know what's going on around them. And so how do we get to a place where we have a system where people can know what's going on and make decisions based on that? information and right. have that ready for us for the next pandemic threat
1: so insurance won't pay for it because the doctor's going to treat you one the same way whether you have one variant or another and to be clear the cdc the federal government has not created a, a lab network of its own to handle this
7: It has a consortium through which scientists communicate, and it does give out grants, and it just gave out a bunch of grants very recently to academic institutions to help build up this capacity. And it got new money from the Biden administration in April that it's handing out over the course of actually a few years it's going to do a couple different things with that money in order to build up sequencing but people in the community the lab community say it's not going that quickly not as quickly as they hoped there's not the urgency that's needed to respond to the given pandemic the one we're facing right now mm-hmm. and so and look doctors could make decisions and may have tools to figure out how to treat a person differently if they had more information about mutations so an ER doctor may be in the hospital and have six patients responding a certain way but that doctor isn't being given those patients, mutation information. So there's a there's kind of a a dearth of knowledge that we could actually we should we could develop this knowledge. We could be on the cutting edge of moving forward with this. But we need to rethink our regulations and we need to rethink them in warp speed. We can't be thinking and moving as slowly as we've traditionally moved in this laboratory space because that's just not going to address the current pandemic.
1: One of the voices in Cynthia's piece is Rick Bright, Senior Vice President of Pandemic Prevention and Response at the Rockefeller Foundation. Who says the CDC failed to grasp the urgency of sequencing of this very practice that we're talking about? And Rick is with us now, too, on the line. Rick, thank you for joining us as we try to understand where we're going here. You said it seemed more like a side project or a hobby when you talked to the CDC about this. What are they missing here?
8: Well, Joe, thanks for having me on. And it is an excellent um, story that Cynthia put out today. And it covers the, a wide scope of the, the challenge that we're facing in this new field, relatively new field of genomic sequencing, it's important to realize this is the first virus outbreak or major pandemic that we've had when we've had this type of technology at our fingertips to be able to look at viruses and and, and detect viruses in in new ways and see how they're mutating and changing. And so since this technology hadn't really permeated our healthcare system or the public health system, um, there there were you know, large gaps in, in the knowledge base and how best to use it and how best to employ it. And there was there were gaps, as, as Cynthia said, in our healthcare system to be able to incorporate this new technology in those labs. When this virus first started spreading um, in the United States and around the world, but especially in the United States, we had a very small lab set up in the CDC That job was to sequence various pathogens It wasn't focused just on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it was a very small lab with a few people and very underfunded. And I believe they were doing the best they could to keep up with uh, the sequencing as it came through and the viruses became more and more prevalent. But they just weren't equipped to handle the rapid spread of this virus and the funding wasn't coming through for the federal government to enhance that lab or like we saw in diagnostic testing at the early days of this outbreak there wasn't this mindset to reach out beyond the federal government to incorporate the private sector and incorporate the academic labs around the country to do some of this work to help the CDC and, and help the federal government track these viruses.
1: Well, now that we understand love- the impact of Delta, this is this is a household conversation. Now we realize how it's spreading, how dangerous it is. Does that change the conversation? As we know, there will likely be more variants, Rick. It,
8: it actually it's changed the conversation somewhat in that the CDC and, and other. Um, public health agencies around the world are doing more sequencing. So, I mean, you can see the numbers uh, earlier this year um, were very low, less than a half of a percent or so. Now they're almost at ten percent. The challenge though, Joe, is there hasn't been a lot of thought put into how to most effectively sequence. And so we're, we're seeing more numbers, but it's not targeted and distributed in, in communities that are hard to reach or underserved. Is you know, If we have 10% more sequences done, you know, if they're all coming from New York and L.A. And, 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 and Houston or something, it doesn't tell us what's happening in the middle of our country. It doesn't tell us what's happening into um, communities who are underserved. So what we need to do, and this is why I think that the CDC is still sort of missing the boat here is – They've decided uh, a few months ago to really only sequence vaccine breakthrough cases. So these are viral infections in people who have been fully vaccinated. And these are happening more and more as we see this Delta virus spread. But the CDC decided to only sequence viruses from people who are hospitalized or died from the infection. And I believe this is a critical gap. And this is what the Rockefeller Foundation, through our Pandemic Prevention Institute, Is supporting a network of labs across the US and in other countries to shine the light on these viruses that are emerging in people who are vaccinated, who don't have symptoms, or who are mildly infected and not getting treatment. This is the virus. This is where the virus is mutating and where the next Delta plus or the next Lambda or next letter in the Greek alphabet is going to emerge from because they're flying under the radar. They're changing, and no one's looking at those viruses. And this is what we're trying to fill the gap on with our institute at Rockefeller Foundation.
1: Thankfully, you are there for us. Rick Bright is Senior Vice President of Pandemic Prevention and Response at the Rockefeller Foundation. More variants are coming, and the U.S. is not ready to track them. The big take today on the Bloomberg Terminal. Cynthia Coons, great work, great reporting, and thanks for being with us today on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. Let's bring in Rick and Jeannie for some final thoughts on this. Of course, our Bloomberg political contributors spent the hour with us. Rick, as Delta takes hold, particularly in unvaccinated areas, does the administration need to start a more concerted effort to track these variants?
3: Absolutely. I mean, what you really want to see is that uh, the Biden administration lead the world in tracking these to the source, right? I mean, like, you want to find these where they start south africa in india and places like that you don't want to wait till they're in st louis in michigan um you know you, you but but in order to contain the spread of these variants and the mutations as your uh, earlier uh, interviewee was talking about um you you, you got to get on top of what's actually happening and the mm-hmm. fact that we're not putting more resources after the trillions of dollars we've spent you know, on COVID economic recovery to our public health priorities, um, it's disconcerting to me.
1: It seems like there's a lot there, Jeannie. While we're talking about debating trillions in infrastructure, how come this hasn't been handled in a more deliberate way?
4: I think I was struck by the fact that you and Cynthia and Rick Bright were talking about the fact that they aren't moving fast enough in a pandemic, and that cuts across all these stories we're talking about, right, whether it's the pandemic, infrastructure, the race against China, cyber attacks, anything else. Why isn't the U.S. government able to address these crises we are facing? That's the question that's got to be asked and answered, and Cynthia's piece I think is a great insight into this critical area as it concerns genomic sequencing.
1: It just makes you realize what a patchwork this still is after all this time. And, Rick, the Biden administration has really embraced COVID as something that it could win on. And this is potentially another liability. Sure. I mean, look, thank goodness.
3: Um, You know, we have an administration that's actually taking the pandemic seriously. No doubt we gave up a year of... uh, uh, examining our navels, so to speak, around uh, this topic when uh, Donald Trump was president. But at the end of the day, there, there, it, the amount of depth of, of detail that still needs to be tackled, both here and abroad, uh, is, is, is going to mean that the Biden administration, regardless of whether or not it's still a positive political impact for his administration, needs to go to work.
1: Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis, thanks as ever for your insights into all of our guests. Here on Bloomberg Sound On. Another day in history. I'll meet you back here tomorrow. What could happen then? Stay with us. News break straight ahead. Check traffic too. I'm Joe Matthew. And this is Bloomberg.